Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we can gather together, time of digging into your word and learning more about how to, how to study your word to get more out of it, to understand what you would have us to understand from your word, that we would learn to read your word with understanding and with discernment so that we can, we can be equipped to share you, to share your gospel with a lost and broken world. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as we move into our next, the next section in our inductive Bible study um, class that we've been doing, for those we've been using this book on inductive Bible study, um, it's not the only one on inductive Bible study out there. There are others. Um, the Como method that we've been using, that's another inductive Bible study. Um, but just kind of as a refresher, when we talk about inductive Bible study, we're talking about reading, reading the text, drawing out of the text in a methodical, consistent way so that we can, we can understand what is the text communicating without running into the errors of reading into the text of what we would want to be there. So we're mo- we've spent the last few weeks in the section on observation. Um, this week we're moving into, okay, well now that we've observed the text and what's there, what does this mean? How do we interpret, how do we accurately understand what we've identified on the page as there? It's investigating the text. In some ways, think of it as a bit of like solving a whodunit. You know, with observation, we're gathering the evidence. What's there? What are we seeing going on on the page in front of us? Interpretation is making sense of the evidence that we have. Now that we've gathered what's there, you know, the words on the page, the structure of the text, any literary features, any significant words, what does this mean? And finally, once we've, once we've determined what does this mean, we act on the interpretation. That's the application of the text. What does this mean? Now remember when we've talked about um, the different hermeneutical principles that we have, that there is the one meaning principle, that the text on the page has one meaning. Much like when we, if we're thinking about, you know, the the whodunit, we can look at the evidence in front of us, there's only one thing that happened. It's not, there are not multiple accurate interpretations of the evidence of what happened because at the end of the day, there's only one thing that happened. But what we do with that, there can be multiple applications of what we need to do next once, once we figured out the meaning of the text. The purpose of of interpretation is to understand the text at, at its exegetical level. That means understanding the text as it was in, intended by its author to its original audience. This isn't a blind interpretation, though. We're not walking in. We're not walking in with a blank slate of, oh, what do I feel like this means? It is a principled interpretation using the using the hermeneutical principles that we've that we had talked about in the previous section on observation. 
we're using the literal principle that the words on the page have a historical grammatical meaning intended by its author. And while there may be figurative language, even that figurative language is communicating a literal truth. There's the contextual principle. What's going on in the text? What's going on around the text? And that the meaning of the textual unit that we're reading has a meaning in context. What's the one meaning of the text? That each text will ordinarily only have one true and accurate meaning. It may have multiple applications, but there's typically only one accurate meaning of the text. The exegetical principle that we strive to pull out of the text the meaning intended by its original author to its original audience to avoid reading in what we would like the text to mean. How, how, what do I feel like this text means? Well, I could feel like the text means something and be totally off base. The goal is to understand what, does, what was the text, what was the, did the original author mean to the original recipients? The linguistic principle, that the original languages always take precedence over the translation. That the progressive principle that as we read through scripture, there is a progressive revelation of God's plan of salvation through the text. And there's a progression of God revealing himself throughout the text. We can read Genesis chapter 1 and God reveals part of who he is and part of his plan, but the whole plan is not revealed in Genesis 1. To fully understand, we have to read Scripture in its progression. And the harmony principle, that Scripture doesn't contradict itself. So if, we, if we're reading a text and our initial thought is, this contradicts what's written over here, then we probably need to revisit our interpretation. Because we walk in, we, we walk in with the, the presupposition that Scripture does not contradict itself. And we'll make use of all, most, if not all, of these principles through the process of interpretation. These principles serve as guardrails that ensure that we're using exegesis. We're actually pulling out of the text the meaning intended by its original author to its original recipients to avoid eisegesis, that is, reading what we would like it to mean or what has uh, colloquially been known as narcissesis, reading ourselves into the text. Yeah. There, there are some pastors, and I use that word lightly, who will read the story of David and Goliath and will read themselves, well, we're David overcoming our Goliaths. Is that what the author meant? No. Using these, these hermeneutic principles, this principled approach to biblical interpretation guards against that error. The first step that we have to do is consider the context. Now, if you recall, when we were talking about observation, considering or looking at the context was part of was part of observation as well. 
But when we consider the context in light of now we're interpreting the text, we're not just we're not just reading and observing to see what's there, but now we're striving to understand the text in, its con- in the context. Considering the context takes a little bit of a, a, a deeper approach to understanding context than just, okay, what's going on around it? Okay, now that we know what's going on around it, what does this mean? How does the context potentially change the interpretation of what's going on. An example of this, this, the text of Mark that we're working through right now, you know, when we talk about last week identifying the, te- the boundaries of the, text, the textual unit, one of, those, I, one of those boundary markers was the inclusio. Often we see a repetition of theme at the beginning and at the end. Well, in Mark, we're in the middle of one big inclusio right now, that started with the feeding of the 5,000 and wraps up with the feeding of the 4,000 two chapters later. Well, now that we know the bounds of that, well, now we're in the middle of it. What, how does understanding that we're in the middle of a big textual unit change our interpretation or affect how we understand the faith of the Syrophoenician woman? Or today, the healing of the blind and deaf man. Does that impact our understanding under, now that we understand that context? Context should impact our understanding. But to begin to think contextually, we have to first have an awareness that we need to think contextually. That when we approach a text, I'm reading it, And my first reaction to reading that should be, what's going on around it? How does what I'm reading, how does this unit of what I'm reading fit into what's going on before and after? It's that awareness that I need to think contextually about what I'm reading. But once I think contextually about it, it's it's understanding how the the perception of how the context influences it. Well, now that I know that I need to read what comes before and what comes after, or even understanding what I'm reading in the greater context of the book, you know, how does, so like with what we're working through in Mark, how does understanding the the feeding of the 5,000 fit in with the context of what's going on immediately around it, but also, how does that fit in with what we're reading in the book of Mark as a whole? How does the context influence? But then there's knowledge. And it's the knowledge of how the various types of context influence. It's one thing to understand what the inclusio is, it's another thing to understand what does that mean. It's one thing to understand what is a chiastic structure in our observation, but it's another thing to understand, well, what should I expect out of that? How does, how does that structure tell me what this means? 
So when we consider the context, we consider words and phrases only have a meaning in their context of how the word or phrase is used. One that I've, uh, one that I've come back to a couple of times as we've been going through this is the word day as it shows up in the Old Testament. Oftentimes that word that's translated as day means a literal 24-hour sundown to sundown day. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it can refer to a span of time. Sometimes it can refer to the day of the Lord. How do we know, how do the translators who translated it know how to translate it? The context of what's going on in the text tells us what that word means. It tells us what that phrase means. So we can't, you know, when we can consider the context and interpret the words and the phrases in the text in its context, we're not just reading it blind of, oh, this word means this at all times and all places, because it doesn't. Sometimes the same phrase used in different places can mean something different based on the context of what's going on before and what's going on after. And there are, three, there are three different types of broad context when we're talking about what's known as the, hermeneut the hermeneutical triad. There's the historical context, that is, what's the political, cultural, situational issues going on, not just at the time of the events being described, but we also know that sometimes the books of the Bible have been written many years after the events that it's describing. So, so it's not just understanding the historical context of the situation of the events being described, but maybe even understanding the historical context of the author who's writing it. When we understand that some of Paul's letters that he wrote, he wrote from prison. Does that change how we understand some of what he wrote? He wrote it from prison. Sure. The, what's the literary context? This is understanding what's the text going on around it? What's the genre? Because as we know, different genres have different rules or different expectations for understanding it. And what's the context of the text within Scripture as a whole? And then the theological context. That is, what are the theological themes? How does this fit in the, the particular covenant in which we're reading it? But also, what's the location of the textual unit in the unfolding of God's plan of salvation? So when we, when we look into these contexts, when we've considered it all, we should, we should begin to have a much clearer understanding of what does the text we're reading actually mean? What's that one meaning of the text that we strive to discern? Ah, okay, there we go. So when we talk about historical context, we're talking about the geopolitical, the literary, and the situational context. The geopolitical context is what's the historical, political, and geographical setting of the events reflected in a particular section of scripture? What's going on? 
what's the historical, what's the political backdrop against, about what's going on? Ken, could you open to Isaiah 23 through 25, or Isaiah 19, 23 through 25? Isaiah nineteen twenty three through 25. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to, to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. How does understanding what the geopolitical context of Isaiah's writing impact maybe how we understand this text? What was going on with Israel at the time Isaiah was writing? You had Assyria to the north, who would eventually invade, who would eventually invade Israel and transport the, the northern ten tribes away into captivity, and they would never return. Assyria was a mortal enemy. Egypt, well, Egypt was the land of their slavery. Though, yeah, the ten northern are often referred to as the ten lost tribes. But we have Egypt and Assyria, the political backdrop of Isaiah's writing. These are mortal enemies of Israel. And yet here we're reading that God says, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Does understanding the context of when Isaiah's writing make that text a little bit more significant? Is there a meaning there that we should probably step back and, huh, what's going on? Because understanding the political context of the day, why is God saying that? Yeah. So sometimes understanding the context can make an what's an interesting text of Scripture anyway, a little bit more head-scratching. Huh. This isn't what I expect. Why isn't this what I expect? How does this impact the meaning? But there's also the cultural context. And this can be the cultural mores and customs that can influence the meaning of particular words and phrases. One that we see pop up, um, maybe most obviously, and there's a lot throughout Scripture that there's a lot of cultural things, maybe a lot of things that are related to the Mosaic Law, that as we're reading, we don't fully understand. Phil, would you be willing to read Ruth? Four verse seven. Ruth four verse seven. Now this was the custom 
Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Yeah, the bigger context that we have here is Boaz is willing to marry Ruth, but he recognizes there's someone who's a closer kinsman redeemer than I am. So they basically, they get first dibs. If they say no, sure, I'll marry her. In fact, I want to marry her. But he has first refusal. That seems like a very foreign concept to us today. How does understanding that custom, what that means, influence how we understand that? It It doesn't. Okay, there it is. Um, It recognizes that Boaz is trying to do things by the book properly. Yeah. Because the bigger context of Ruth is that it's the time of the judges. A time in Israel where people were, were worshiping other gods. They were following after other gods. They were actively rebelling against the one true God. And yet in all of Israel, here's this, here's this man who's trying to follow the law. So yeah, understanding that custom, understanding the parts of the Mosaic law that, un- that impact this, help us understand maybe even more what's going on in Ruth 4. How does that balance out with the whole thing in, is it in Leviticus, of not marrying your brother's wife? The whole Henry VIII argument? Tag, Ken. Ken, I'll defer to you on that. It's complicated. <laughs> okay. The, the, that was going to be my response, too. Yeah, there, there are... Yeah. So, but again, that's another... How does understanding that context and what's going on here, again, how does that impact our understanding and interpretation of what's happening because it should there's also the situational context and this would be particular situational or the particular situational or occasional backdrop that serves as the reason for writing this particular section of the text so we see in in judges 21 right at the very end that the tribe of Benjamin is almost wiped out. And the text of 21 is the tribe of Benjamin going out and stealing wives. I think, was it 600 of them or 400 of them, if memory serves? Several hundred, several hundred Benjaminites going out and stealing several hundred wives. Well, what's the situational backdrop? What's this, the context, again, that gives rise to writing this? You know, what we see immediately, 
immediately before, we see the rest of the tribes of Israel practically wipe out the tribes of Benjamin. Well, so that a tribe, so that a tribe of Israel wouldn't go extinct, they need wives. But no one's willing to give them their to give them their women for wives. So again, Israel in its rebellion and not following the law, they said, you know what? Go steal them. The context, that's the immediate context, but the greater con the greater situational context is this is a nation that's rebelling against God. This is a nation as as the end of Judges would desperately say, was in desperate need of a king because everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. That's the situational context. So we can read through Judges 21, and, oh, this is, this is kind of horrible. Why are they doing that? See, when, we, when we're talking about interpretation, Interpretation is getting more to the question of answering the why. Why is this happening? Observation says, this is happening. This is the who, what, when, where. You know, the just the facts, ma'am. This is what's happening. Ob interpretation strives to answer the why. Why is this happening? Part of how we answer that why is, what's the context? We ask, does does Scripture give us any contextual clues, or maybe not even clues, maybe it just comes flat out and says, this is what's going on and this is why this is happening. But there's not just history that we need to consider. There's also the literary context, what's happening within the text itself. What's happening in the surrounding. Now, in these, different, in these three different types of context, the historical, the literary, and the theological, there's often going to be a lot of overlap. You know, when we talk about the situational context of, well, why is Judges 21 happening? Why are the Benjaminites going out and stealing wives? We learn the, we learn the situational context by considering the surrounding text because Judges 20 tells us there's what type of genre is this? Is this narrative history? Is this a parable? Is this poetry? Is this prophecy? Is this the law? Is this apocalyptic? And what are, what are the rules for understanding each type of, of literary genre? And what's the canonical context? That is, what's the context of the unit within the book as a whole? What's the context of the book within the grouping of Scripture? For example, if I'm reading the book of Amos, well, the book of Amos is often lumped together within what's called the 12 minor prophets. Does that context give me an understanding? Actually, in the, in the Hebrew Scripture, the 12 minor prophets are lumped together as one book. They're not divided into the 12 it's all one book. And what's the locate, what is the place, the context of this book within the context of the canon of Scripture as a whole? 
is what I'm reading here, does this show up again in other places in Scripture? So the surrounding context is a, what we call a grammatical syntactical context. What, what are the words on the page? What's the syntax? The cotext. Okay. What's going on in the text surrounding the target text since the meaning of words is contextual? Because if we don't consider the surrounding text, sometimes we can come to some real interesting interpretations. So, Robin, would you be willing to read Joel 3.14? And Lily, could you read Matthew 4.9? Joel 3.14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So, as I was doing research on this, um, the author of the book that we're using kind of guiding us through was telling of a, a situation where he went to a missions conference. And this verse was the theme verse of the missions conference. Because you, you have to make a decision. Make a decision to follow the Lord. Sounds great, doesn't it? But as we consider the surrounding context of the verse, that's not what it's talking about at all. The context of this, if we go back up to verse 12, is let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. God's drawn them all in, is going to slaughter them all. Huh. That's kind of an interesting missions verse. I suppose if your mission was repent or die, maybe that works. But when we consider the surrounding context, Joel 3.14 doesn't really work so well as a mission statement, does it? Maybe it does. I don't know. I would... I would it, it is a style. <laughs> Let's hop over to Matthew 4.9. Lily, could you read Matthew 4.9? Yep. And... Matthew 4, 9. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Sounds great. Sounds like a wonderful promise. In fact, some may have seen kind of the meme going around on Facebook. There's a daily calendar. This was the inspirational verse of the day. Sounds inspiring. Less inspiring if you know who said it. It's in the context of Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And Satan has said to Jesus, 
I will give you all the things of the world if you would but bow down and worship me. Huh. Inspiring quote. Not so inspiring if you understand the context. We should never read a verse or a unit out of its context. Why? We get some real interesting theology when that happens. When we stay true to the seven hermeneutical principles that, we, that are on the first page of your handout, one of them is the contextual principle. Read what's going on around it. It guards against really funky things happening. So how do we consider the surrounding context? Well, first off, we have to consider the boundaries of the target text. Last week when we were talking about read the literary, you know, determining the literary unit, what are the boundaries? Are there transition words at the beginning or the end? Is there a literary feature such as a chiastic structure, an inclusio, or other literary features that tell us this is the beginning and the end of what I'm reading? Because maybe I want to read Matthew 4.9. Sounds great. Matthew 4.9 is not a literary unit on its own. The literary unit starts several verses ahead and it ends several verses following. To understand Matthew 4.9, I should probably determine the boundaries of the, four, the full text and read that. Summarize the main idea of the unit. Well, as I'm reading this, what's the idea of the unit? Especially, we go, you know, that unit, in, or that verse in Joel. The valley of decision. Jennifer. So, when we're de determining the boundaries, like if it's a text I have no familiarity with. Right. Do, do you, but like if it's something that's complex, is there a resource like other than another human? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, no, that's, how, so one of the ways, yeah, because I would imagine that not, not all of us are familiar and thoroughly familiar with every section of text within the scripture. There's probably some that we're very familiar with. We've heard from a very young age, we're like, oh yeah, we know what's going on. We think, for example, the Beatitudes. Probably most of us have heard or read the Beatitudes from a relatively young age. We think, oh, okay, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. That makes sense. That's the unit. But what if it's, say... I'm reading Habakkuk. You know, that, you know that, that good old common read. Yeah. How many of you have read Habakkuk lately? How, how lately is lately? <laughs> <laughs> point, being, it, point being, it's often one of those books of Scripture that gets skipped over a whole lot. Because first, you know, everyone pronounces it differently, so nobody knows what you're talking about. Um, so part of it is going to be we're reading the theme. Yeah, maybe, okay, we're going to back up. Do we see any transition words that start happening before the target text? Do we see any thematic changes happening? So boundaries are going to be thematic changes. There will be transition words. Ken, you look like you have something you're gonna, you want to add. 
Well, I was, I was just going to say that for the, that particular question, I think the, the simplest place to start is the paragraph. So yeah. our Bibles, in, our, in the English translation, it marks off paragraphs. We'll start there. All right. Yeah. You know, if for a text we have no familiarity with, we have no way of de- determining where the boundaries are. Well, our, our, our Bibles do a pretty good job of give, giving us the basic thing in the paragraphs. And then if you read the paragraph and you say, well, it seems like it's still connected to something else, so then you can expand beyond that. Um, I think that's probably the simplest that, yeah. place to start. Yeah, most, most English translations, like you say, they, you know, they'll, they'll be paragraph headings or there'll be section headings. For example, Matthew 4 comprises a couple of paragraphs, but there are some headings in there that at least give us an idea based on what, the, what translators or biblical scholars in reading it have said, oh, well, there's a, tra- there's a change here in topic or a change in theme. Now, not, not all of those are broken at the best place. There are some times where, you know, one of them I'm, I can think off the top of my head um, in Mark chapter 3, where it's talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, most Bibles will have the heading of that section as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and it breaks it at verse 23. But when you're reading the text and identifying some of the literary structures, you realize, you know what? Maybe verse 20 is a better breaking point because there you have the chiastic structure. It begins and ends with family, then teachers of the law show up, then it's what we talked about last week where there are successive corresponding headings. So sometimes it works really well. Most, I would say probably 99% of the time, the paragraph breaks and the headings in our English translations do a really good job. I was just going to say too that question. Um, What's been very helpful for me is getting a hold of a really good study Bible that has almost verse-by-verse commentary at the bottom of the page. Um, I use it a lot, so if I'm reading along and I don't quite get it or I just want to know more, I'll go down and read that and then follow the corresponding verses as well. Yeah, That's really helpful. That's another really good one because sometimes, like I, so my daily reader that I use is the ESV Study Bible. There There are definitely others that are really good study Bibles. And so one of them... Um, along the way, there will be kind of some highlights with where it's highlighting a larger section of the scripture. And sometimes it'll say, you know, this, this text is occurring within a larger context, and it'll give that breakdown. So really good study Bibles are often an invaluable resource as well because it'll be right there. Um, you know, really good question because this can be one of the harder things to figure out is what's the boundaries of the target text? Because we can miss some of the bigger meaning if we're not accurately breaking down the text. But then we want to summarize the main idea of the unit. You know, what, what say we've identified, you know, Matthew chapter 4, that's our unit that we're working with. Well, what's the idea of the unit? What's the general theme of the unit? And then the third thing, the, first, the third step to understanding the, con, the surrounding context is explaining how or if the unit relates to the surrounding context. 
Does this fit in? Is this a subsection or a story within a story of a bigger context? How does it relate? Or have we completely transitioned to a, new, to a whole new scene within the text? That will give us the surrounding context because, again, it relates to each other. There's also identifying the literary genre subgenre. What's the type of genre that's used to convey the idea of the text? Is poetry con conveying the idea of the text? Is prophecy conveying the idea? Now, if you remember back in our section on observation, identifying the genre was one of those things as well. But in observation, observation simply entails recognizing the different genres. Oh, this is poetry. Oh, this is prophecy. This is narrative. This is a parable. This is a, this is a pastoral epistle. And in observation, we're not really going any deeper than that. In interpretation, we're taking what we've identified in observation and we're going deeper. Oh, this is poetry. What, what do I know about the rules of poetry? What should I expect moving forward? Oh, I've identified that this is a parable. Well, what, what do I know about the parables and how Jesus teaches his parables? This is prophecy. Okay, what do I know? What do I know about the rules and the structure of prophecy? Because it's the expectation. Okay, well, what's coming next? If I know as I'm reading this poetry, it's building up to something, well, that's, that's going to start giving me some of the meaning. Because each literary type or subtype kind of has its rules of the road for understanding this. We don't read poetry the same way that we read narrative. We don't read parables the same way that we read narrative. They have different rules of the road. You know, when we read parables, we probably know, oh, you know what? There's probably going to be symbolic, some symbolic language that pops up in these parables. You know, the wheat and the tares the seed on the road. There's probably some figurative language that's conveying a literal truth. Like when Jesus is talking about casting seed on the road, you know, the, the seed that falls on the road or the rocks or the good soil or in the weeds, is he just sitting down and giving some really good farming advice? No. And, but if I read the text as if, Jesus is just giving some good farming advice to the people of the day. I've applied the wrong rules of the road to that text. I'm missing what Jesus is communicating. If I read Old Testament narrative with the rules of prophecy and say, oh, okay, well, there's, there's a lot of symbolic languages, a lot of symbolic language and a lot of, you know, a lot of other things. Well, it can put some of those historical things in a really weird interpretation and now I've started a cult. Because one of the when we see a lot of cults pop up, a lot of false religions that claim to be based on the Bible, think 
Jehovah's Witness, think Mormonism, think the Branham, you know, the Branhamism. A lot of it is based on, I mean, there's a lot of things, but a lot of it is based on, I'm not reading the text in front of me with the right rules. I'm not using the guard, I'm not using sound hermeneutical principles as the guardrails. I'm reading into the text what I want to read. Also, as you and I have discussed this, we can think the cultural fundy movement. Yeah. Some of the, you know, within the broader context of fundamentalism, there's biblical fundamentalism, which we definitely are. We, we want, you know, understand the words of Scripture as they were intended. What does this mean? What are the, what are the hermeneutical guardrails that keep us on track versus cultural fundamentalism? But it, yeah where they have somewhat abandoned the, and sometimes not somewhat, sometimes wholesale, abandoned the, guard, the hermeneutical guardrails and have applied some really interesting things that have no bearing in Scripture when we read it accurately. So we have to know the rules of, the, you know, the rules of a particular text. And within the canonical context... That's how does this fit into the book as a whole, the grouping of the book within a subgroup in the book in the context of the canon of Scripture. For example, Proverbs 31.10 to the end of the chapter involves the virtuous wife. And yet, what the canonical context means is that textual units tend to sustain a specific thematic relationship within the book as a whole. We don't usually see a theme pop up within a section of a book that hasn't already shown up in the book before. So we see in Proverbs 31, there's the virtuous wife, and yet earlier within the book, in Proverbs 8 and 9, we see lady wisdom and folly woman show up. Or lady wisdom and woman folly. Is there a relationship there? Well, there's a thematic relationship. Does that impact how we understand Proverbs 31? It could. When we read 1 Kings 1 through 11, where, it's, where the writer of 1 Kings is painting the downfall, the downfall of the kings of Israel to the, the breakup of the United Kingdom, with David in the aftermath of Bathsheba, Solomon, and then his many wives from foreign nations and foreign gods and Rehoboam you know with you think my father taxed you I'm going to tax you harder and yet within the greater canonical context of scripture weren't the Israelites warned in Deuteronomy 17 oh you want a king this is what a king you know God talks about what happens with kings they're warned again in, by Samuel. You want a king? All right, you'll get a king. And this is what's going to happen. So there's a greater canonical context that gives us the meaning. You know, we, think of, we think of Solomon's great wisdom when two women claim the same baby and Solomon's solution is, you know what? We're going to cut the baby in half. Oh, and look at Solomon's wisdom. This is great. And yet, consider it within the canonical context of 
what did the Mosaic law say about judicial process? Did Solomon follow it? No, he didn't. Does that change how we understand what Solomon did? It could, but there's a greater canonical context. Then there's the theological context, and we are a little pressed for time, so we'll kind of, I don't like rushing through this, but we'll, we'll get it done. So there's the thematic, the covenantal, and the revelation historical context. The thematic context is its consideration of the theological motif or the theme of the target unit in the context of its greater whole. So, for example, I read a section in Ecclesiastes. Is there a bigger theme of Ecclesiastes that carries through that should probably impact how I understand? You know, we think of Ecclesiastes, you know, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. You know, we live, we die, the animals live, the animals die. Does that backdrop of the writing as a whole color how we should interpret the text? It should, because, again, themes often carry throughout the text. Job. There's a questioning of God. Job wants justice. We think of, you know, oftentimes the book of Job is called a theodicy. You know, meaning a justification of God or vindicating God. You know, Job is often thought of as answering the question, why does evil happen? Why do, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, that, that age-old question. Well, that's a theme that carries through the book of Job. What's the covenantal context in which a particular promise or judgment is made? This will guard against misappropriation of a text. You know, we, through our historical grammatical reading of Scripture, we understand that there's a difference, that the church is not Israel. The promises that were made to Israel were made within the, greater, within the context of the Mosaic Covenant, the law. This side of the cross, we're not under the law. And there are a lot of promises that have been made in the new covenant. This is one of the biggest things that differentiates those who would ascribe to covenantal theology versus dispensational theology. We consider the covenantal context so that we don't misappropriate a text and apply it where it shouldn't be applied. You know, we think of a lot of the writings in the prophets uh, Micah, when he's talking about a future restoration of Israel, um, Zechariah, those were made within the covenantal context of the law. Talking about things happening in the future, for sure. Prophesying a coming Messiah, a coming Savior, a coming redemption, for sure. But it's occurring within a particular covenantal context. And then, finally, there's the Revelation historical context where, where, in the plan, where in the unfolding of God's plan of salvation is the textual unit? Oh, there's a typo. Not all writers, especially in the Old Testament, were privy to the full scope of salvation. We think of 
in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, where Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through, through those who preach the good news by you or to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, what's Peter talking about here? That try as they might, the prophets who tried to discern the day or the hour or the person of the Christ, that was something not revealed to them. The human author could not possibly have an could, the human author could not have in, intended that which he could not possibly know. We, while hindsight is twenty twenty, you know, we on this side of the cross who have a more fuller revelation of the New Testament of Christ, we can look back on the Old Covenant, on the prophets, and we can look back with twenty twenty hindsight and say, oh, that's what they were talking about. And we see this when the writer of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament extensively talk, and as these things are messianic in nature. We see Paul. We see through the book of Mark where he quotes from the, book, from the prophet Isaiah. We can look back with 2020 hindsight and see, oh, yeah, this was foretelling the coming of Christ. And yet, as we're told in First Peter, the prophets on the other side of the cross, that wasn't revealed to them. The, uh, the human author could not, have in, could not have intended that which he could not possibly know. So we want to be careful in ascribing the full understanding, or ascribing that the author fully understood what he was writing. Did, I, did Isaiah fully understand that he was writing about the Messiah in certain places? In some he did, probably. But not in everything. That keeps the guardrails up. Again, all of these serve as guardrails to ensure that we're not reading things into the text which aren't there. Jess, you look like you have a question. Okay. You just had a look on your face that was... No. Okay. So, understanding the context gives us the guardrails to understanding the text. As we move forward, we'll be talking about um, interpreting, you know, more interpretation, referencing doing more cross-referencing. Well, what's showing up here? How does that correlate with what's showing up in other places? Because again, when we talk about the harmony, and we can do that because we work from the assumption of the harmony principle that Scripture is harmonious. Scripture does not contradict itself and that Scripture is self-interpreting. Scripture interprets Scripture. 
I just want to make a quick point on this last point about the human author could not have intended that which he could not possibly know. That's, that's obviously a, a, a true statement that we should, would do well to keep in mind. There's a progress of revelation, and there's aspects of things that are more fully revealed that we have in the New Testament that were not fully revealed in the Old Testament. I think sometimes, especially our, um, our covenantal brethren who approach Scripture with a, a different hermeneutic than we do, they would overstate this point, where they would look at things and say, oh, yeah, well, they, they didn't understand anything, and so we're, we, now with the New Testament, we can go back and spiritualize so many things within yes. the Old Testament. Oh, the, the human author, he just didn't even know about that stuff. It, that was, that's what God intended, but that's not what the human author intended, and so they spiritualize a lot of passages, and they would appeal to statements like this to do it, and I think we want to be careful about that pendulum swinging too far that direction where the human author, I believe there's harmony between the human and divine author. Yes. And while there's significance that the original author may not have fully understood, like what Peter says, he did not understand the time or the season or the person, but that doesn't mean he didn't understand he was speaking about the Messiah. Right. Right. And so I, I do think that there's, the human author did intend a lot and knew a lot, but we need to do, need to keep it in the progressive revelation aspect of it. Yeah. So... There's, there's got to be a balance in there. We, we can't let the pendulum swing too far one way or the other. No, I think, I think that's a point well taken because as we talk about the progressive revelation, you know, for example, when Isaiah is writing, well, Isaiah wasn't writing with a blank slate. There was already a progression of revelation that God had given through the law, through prophets who had come prior, through the judges, through... And the human author, you know, in this case, in this example, Isaiah, went into this already with that understanding, already with that revelation. So, yeah, when we get to Isaiah 9, where it's talking about, you know, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, he already had a certain amount of revelation there. He knew he was writing about something and probably knew he was writing about something yet to come. Did he know the fullness of what he was getting, what, of what he was writing about? Probably not, as we're told. They searched. It wasn't revealed to them. But that doesn't mean nothing was revealed to them. Again, this is one of the re another, it's so important to understand within the context of the whole. So, we are definitely a little over time. So, let's... Let's pray, and then we will transition to our time of worship in song and worship in the Word. Father, we, once again we come before you and we thank you for your revealed Word to us. That, that you have spoken and that it was preserved for us. And that your Word can be understood, that you are not a God who remains hidden that we can never know you but you're you are a God who has revealed himself and it was written for the ages that we that we today can understand we thank you and we praise you father that you have preserved your word in Jesus name amen <clears throat>